This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookmark This, a Straits Times podcast in which we talk about books and the headlines and recommend to you new reads. I'm Olivia Ho and I am joined today remotely by my co-host, To Wendy. Hello. Today we have got a lineup of meditative new books for you. Each of them is quite different, but all of them have to do with walking in cities and with the passage of time. So we're going to be talking about Pulitzer Prize winner Jumpa Lahiri's Whereabouts, which she wrote in Italian first, and then she translated herself into English, as well as Natsuko Imamura's strange Japanese novella, The Woman in the Purple Skirt. But first, let's kick things off with an author whom you will probably know best for his novel Call Me By Your Name, written in 2007. That is Andre Asiman, and his novel was made into an Oscar-nominated film in 2017. I think it won Best Adapted Screenplay, if I'm not wrong. Uh, But if you have read it, you will never look at Peaches the same way again. (laughs) (laughs) If you know, then you know. But he also writes other stuff, and uh, earlier this year, he published a collection of essays called Homo Irrealis. So, Wenli, what does Irrealis mean? Okay, so Irrealist takes its name from the Irrealist moods of linguistics, which are a set of grammatical moods that indicate that a certain event direction is not known to have happened at the moment the speaker is speaking. Mm-hmm. So in the book, um, Asiman explains that these Irrealist moods are also known, and I quote, as counterfactual moods and include the conditional, the subjunctive, the optative, and the imperative, all best expressed in this book as the might be and the might have been. So that's his explanation of what an irrealist mood is. Um, Essentially, these essays are a collection of musings um, about cities such as Alexandria and Rome, as well as passages which in a way draw on the life and work of cultural heavyweights like Freud, um, uh, film director Eric Roma, and novelist Marcel Proust. So they deal very heavily with the theme of memory. Not just about the things which are remembered, the places they're remembered, but also the ways in which they are remembered and interpreted and kind of distorted in the mind's eye over time. So in the book, Asiman writes that, and I quote, Art sees footprints, not feet. Luster, not light. Here's resonance, not sound. Art is about our love of things when we know it's not the things themselves we love. So in a way, he's suggesting that memory, you know, it's not just about the thing that is remembered, it's about the person who is actually doing the remembering. So um, I think at this point, a lot of people might start to feel that this this could potentially be the kind of book that might put many people off. And indeed, I think Asiman, I mean, I kind of see him as a writer's writer, and I think a lot of people would find him you know, too introspective, too inward-facing, and his writing too involuted. Um, but I do really love the sensitivity that he demonstrates as a prose writer. Um, I'm just going to reference one of my favorite parts of the um, book, which is an essay about um, an essay where he compares the process of art making to the act of whipping up a souffle. So he says, and I quote, um, real meaning, real art does not necessarily reside in the nitty gritty, bare rag and bone shop of the heart. It resides just as easily in the seemingly superfluous in the extra, in the joy of folding and refolding air, in creating space for the unexpected visitor, the extra. 
I do like this uh, joy of folding and refolding air. It's got this yes. very expansive quality to it. Yes. And I feel like he demonstrates this expansive quality in his own writing. I mean, there's a very, there's a lightness to it. There's an airiness to it. it it's generous. It allows for spaces, for ambiguity, for um, unexpected moments. He doesn't, um, there's nothing coercive about his writing. He doesn't try to cram too much into it or allow it to harden into calcified prose. Um, in other words, it feels very much alive. Okay, so would you recommend this to everyone? Because it sounds like it's a very thinky, thinky kind of book. Yeah, I think it's the kind of book that would lend itself more readily to people who already enjoy writing or enjoy thinking about the act of writing. But no harm in picking it up. I mean, it might it might surprise you. I mean, after all, this is the guy who gave us Call Me By Your Name. So the, the writing is brilliant and it's worth reading just for its own sake. Now, if you like what you're listening to, subscribe to our podcast series, Bookmark This, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating too. Back to our show and on to our next book. Our next book is very unusual, linguistically speaking. It is by Junpa Lahiri. Um, most people know her for the Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, Interpreter of Maladies, which was her debut collection of short stories in 1999. And many of them are about Indian immigrants to the United States. A lot of people have said it's uh, you know, kind of autobiographical, which is something she's pushed back against. So some years ago, Lahiri, who is American of Bengali heritage, she decided that she was not going to write in English anymore. And English is the language that she had, you know, won so much acclaim in. And she said that she was only going to write in Italian. And this is a really fascinating exercise because at that point, she wasn't totally fluent in Italian. She'd only started learning it a few years ago. And uh, she uprooted her family. She moved to Rome and she proceeded to immerse herself wholeheartedly in Italian. She didn't read in English, she didn't write in English. And uh, so that's um, that was a few years ago. And in 2018, she published her first Italian novel. It's called Dove Mi Trovo. And it follows this unnamed woman in her 40s. And she moves through a city much like Rome and she reflects on the passing of her days. Uh, so this year, she has published a translation of Dove Mi Trovo into English as whereabouts. And uh, it's quite rare, it's not unheard of, but it's quite rare for an author to translate their own work from a language that is not native to them. Uh, I think most famously people will know of Samuel Beckett, who was the, uh, the Irish Nobel laureate, and um, he he wrote some of his best-known plays deliberately in French, like uh, I think Waiting for Godot was written originally in French, and then he translated them into English. Uh, Lahiri did earlier write an essay collection in Italian that was in Altra Parole, which she tr had translated into English as In Other Words. Uh, she didn't do the translation herself. This was done by Anne Goldstein, who is uh, the you know most acclaimed translator of uh, Eleanor Ferrante, uh, a Neapolitan quartet of novels. I find the title whereabouts quite appropriate because reading it, um, we know that it's set in Italy because she uses the occasional Italian word or marker, you know, like piazza, for example. Um, but there's also a placelessness and a rootlessness to the writing that I find very intriguing. I think it yeah. speaks to her, you know, her experience um, with different cultures. Yeah, so sort of like a, she she's said that she's a kind of linguistic exile because she mm. uh, she grew up she her mother tongue is Bengali but she didn't have the chance to speak in America I think she's mostly lost it by now and uh, then in English you know she's you know both belonging and not belonging so she's gone to Italy which is a language that wasn't was never hers but she's tried to you know try to embrace it 
and um, I think she's described it before in 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 Altra Parole as being uh, she compared it to the myth of Daphne and Apollo. Uh, you know, the when the nymph Daphne is being chased by Apollo, the god, uh, and to save herself, her father her father turns her into a tree. And so she feels like it's this language that has, you know, enclosed her like a hard bark, but um, she can't move. But at the same time, there's this new freedom that she's found in this, uh, in within this, you know, stasis, this captivity. It's very interesting. Anyway, uh, whereabouts? Quite a quite an entrancing novel, I find. Very little happens. It really is just this woman. She's just walking. She's just watching people. She thinks about things. Uh, it's what. I would call a flanery novel, um, the flanners in the case of Lahiri's character. It's a person who walks, uh, just walks. And there is this quality of subtle beauty to her psychogeography that that I really love. So I'm going to read a passage of it here to give you a flavor of the writing. This evening, as I read in bed, I hear the roar of cars that speed down the road below my apartment. And the fact of their passing makes me aware of my own stillness. I can only fall asleep when I hear them. And when I wake up in the middle of the night, always at the same time, it's the absolute silence that interrupts my sleep. That's the hour when there is not a single car on the road, when no one needs to get anywhere. My sleep grows lighter and lighter and then it abandons me entirely. I wait until someone, anyone, drives by. The thoughts that come to roost in my head in those moments are always the gloomiest, also the most precise. That silence, combined with the black sky, takes hold over me until the first light returns and dispels those thoughts, until I hear the presence of lives passing by along the road below me. So I find that this uh, translation from Italian back into English, it creates this very careful distance in the language. All the words are very considered, they're very exactly chosen. It's like uh, she says, the most precise. And uh, the narrator takes so much joy in like just individual words. For instance, she writes in this passage about uh, words like portage, which is jewel box. And uh, she's like, this, you know, this is language has these words, and that's why we, you know, that's the beauty of this particular language. Uh, and she pays so much attention to the play of light, to the passage of time. Uh, it is a very solitary kind of novel, even though she does interact with other people. Uh, and I have found that quality of solitude to be very pleasantly reflective in the pandemic. Uh, she says that solitude is a demands a precise assessment of time. I've always understood this. It's like the money in your wallet. You have to know how much time you need to kill, how much to spend before dinner, what's left over before going to bed. But time seems different here. And my walk took an hour, but to me it felt much longer. Yes, and I love the sparseness of her writing. You know, it's it's a novel that consists of these very, very short chapters and pretty short sentences. So the, the style isn't exactly clipped, but it's very controlled. Yet she's somehow able to convey so much through all that restraint. So we, we get a sense that she, she inhabits this sort of um, fairly neutral emotional state that is neither negative nor positive, but, but, also, but it also contains feelings of you know, loneliness, longing, cynicism, the occasional resignation, and all that brimming below the surface um, and conveyed in such a, um, a restrained fashion. 
now we move on to another woman who also sits around watching people, specifically <laughs> one other woman. Uh, this would be The Woman in the Purple Skirt by Natsuko Imamura. Yep. So in Imamura's novel, um, The Woman in the Purple Skirt is being watched and she is being watched by another woman who calls herself The Woman in the Yellow Cardigan. Um, who is essentially a stalker. She follows this other woman around all the time. So the woman in the yellow cardigan is the narrator of the novel, and she observes um, the purple-skirted woman walking down the street, speaking to kids at the playground, and she even follows her, you know, watches her when she's heading off to job interviews. Um, and she admits um, to the reader that she has been wanting to become friends with the woman in the purple skirt for the longest time. So I'm just going to read a passage from the opening of the book. And I quote, there is a person living not too far from me, known as the woman in the purple skirt. She only ever wears a purple-colored skirt, which is why she has this name. At first, I thought the woman in the purple skirt must be a young girl. This is probably because she is small and delicate-looking, and because she has long hair that hangs down loosely over her shoulders. From a distance, you'd be forgiven for thinking she was about 13, but look carefully from up close, and you see she's not young. Far from it. She has age spots on her cheeks, and that shoulder-length black hair is not glossy. It's quite dry and stiff. About once a week, the woman in the purple skirt goes to a bakery in the local shopping district and buys herself a little custard-filled cream bun. I always pretend to be taking my time deciding which pastries to buy, but in reality I'm getting a good look at her. And as I watch, I think to myself, she reminds me of somebody. But who? So the narrator um, spends plenty of time following this woman around, watching her, and she even tries to help her in very small and unspoken ways. So, for instance, she notices that a woman in the purple skirt is looking for a job, um, but she keeps failing her job interviews. So, so she decides to help her out by um, helping her improve the quality of her hair, which is too dry. So she gathers some old shampoo samples she has lying around her house and hangs them on the door of the woman in the purple skirt, um, hoping that the woman will pick it up and put those shampoo samples to good use. And later on, after the woman in the purple skirt finds a job um, as a housekeeper in um, a local hotel, um, the woman in the yellow cardigan um, spots her in a subway and notices that there is a grain of dried rice on her coat and tries to flick it off for her without her noticing. Finally, in the, at the end of the book, um, when the woman in the purple skirt gets into a scrape, the narrator helps her plot her escapade and allows her to get away. So this is um, a very strange connection, that, um, and, and a very strange if rather one-sided connection that these two women seem to share. And I, I just see it as a very quirky book. In a way, it's an ode to the strangeness of life and the connections we sometimes make. Is it creepy though? I mean, would you if you knew you were being watched by somebody like that? Would you find it creepy? Definitely. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if anyone wouldn't. But but somehow, somehow in this book, um, the narrator manages to make it seem very harmless. I mean, it's 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 slightly creepy, but not quite unsettling. I mean, there is something very cute and vaguely comic about these observations, um, from the attention she pays to the, to the way the other woman eats a cream bun, to um, the way she describes how the purple-skirted woman laughs. You know, there's something very oddly charming about it. 
And um, mm-hmm. this desire for connection just feels so relevant in these, you know, pandemic, socially distanced times when so many people, so many of us feel lonely and we desperately crave some kind of connection with another person. Um, and sometimes we don't really know how to bridge that gap. So I, I don't know, I feel it feels like a very topical book for these times I and mean, we face not just a, a viral pandemic, but also a, a loneliness one in some ways. Anyway, that's what we have for you this episode. Once again, thank you for listening to us. I'm Olivia Ho. And I'm To Wen Lee. And you have been listening to our Bookmark This podcast, which you can subscribe to on your favorite smartphone audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Like us and rate us. Stay home, stay safe, and we'll catch you next time. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.